and welcome to Explorations on Feminist Leadership by One Future Fellows 2022, a podcast by the 2022 cohort of the One Future Fellows, where we discuss, examine, and learn about all things about feminist leadership. I am Ayushmita, and my pronouns are she/her. Hi everyone, I am Anshika, and my pronouns are she and her. Hello, I am Ludmila. My pronouns are she and her. And today we will be discussing about how we can reimagine labor relations by understanding how labor relations intersect with feminist values. So to understand the labor relations, we did a lot of research, tried understanding how we work, how our means and helps work, and how all industries function, hire and pay labor, and how does this intersect with women's rights and impacts the life of the marginalized women we will also talk about who does our work and why should all feminist leaders care about it you know every time i think of labor relations my inner feminist always directs me towards the unpaid labor of housewives who in this case happens to be my mother Um I grew up seeing my mother do all the household chores and yet when someone asked her what her occupation was she would always reply that she did not do anything and this kept bugging me as a child until you know many years later as an undergrad student I did this course in gender and development and I learned that feminists actually have a term for it and Robin Morgan uh calls this as gross national product invisibility When you think about it the term invisibility is quite significant here because it also in a way indicates how women have been forced to be invisible in spaces of power and decision making simply because we do not acknowledge what they do as work i can think of another powerful quote women do everything but control nothing this invisibility underrepresentation denial whatever you want to call it has been backed by almost all statistics for decades the un women statistics report that women's unpaid care or domestic work is equivalent to 10 add to 39% of the gdp across the world and can contribute to the economy more than sectors such as manufacturing commerce or transportation and to this day no matter how much we have advanced in the path of feminism It is still very much true that domestic work or care work is still seen as women's work and it is mostly done by women. For example, in India and Bangladesh it is reported uh that women spend seven and three times respectively more than their male counterparts doing domestic and care work. And you know like Aishmita said she talked about the invisibility this invisibility does lead to women being oppressed because uh when you are doing household chores all the time and not getting paid for it it means you are being financially dependent on the male or other earning family members and as such women have no access to the decision making spaces in the families which also translates to their position in the broader society also uh since women are expected to do domestic work it means that they get to spend less time in paid labor and they also um uh, the even when they're engaged in paid labor coming back home they're still expected to do the domestic work which means they have a double day or the second shift which means despite working longer hours than men 
they're still not compensated financially. And at the same time, I think the fact that women are expected to do work at home is also a mechanism that restricts them to the private spheres of life, which restricts their physical and economic mobility, their opportunities to learn, and also other opportunities that could have enabled them to earn and participate in the formal labor market, which in a way provides a structural advantage to men across cultures, societies. Something that I always have wondered about is how women's housework that is quite visible and relevant in our day-to-day lives is equally invisible in the economy. It is what sustains not only families, but the work that women do in their homes is what sustains the economy. Think about the care work they provide for the elderly and the children. Their work essentially substitutes social services, benefiting governments in many countries. Actually, Aishmita, I can think of a campaign that held very similar views. The Wages for Housework campaign by Maria Della Costa and Selma James. It argued that women provided food, clothes, emotional care to current and future workers and in a way kept capitalism functioning. They also demanded that men's employer compensate women for their housework that ensured benefits the employers. Otherwise, they, uh, they would have to finance this through their own money. Wow, thinking of how women's domestic work has so much economic significance and so often is not considered as actual work makes me wonder who gets to define what work is. Um, I feel like I've been quoting Robin Morgan a little too much in this podcast, but I find her quote to be very relevant uh, for this portion. Uh, She says that women are the world's proletariat and have no voice even in defining what work means. When you look at the work of socialist feminists, uh, they use the concept of capitalist patriarchy or patriarchal capitalism to show how women have no agency in defining work. You know, patriarchy uh, says that women should do the work at home, and that helps capitalism in determining that males will be the primary labor force as they're no longer restricted to stay at home. As a result, the combination of capitalism and patriarchy ensures that women are the secondary labor force and that they're not compensated properly for their work. Actually, Ludmilla, I think the domestic worker helpers, we have today are the perfect examples of patriarchal capitalism or capitalist patriarchy like you just mentioned. Uh, In fact, an international labor organization report said that among the 75.6 million domestic workers worldwide, 76.2% were women. And this reinforced the idea that housework, even when it is paid, is still very much a woman's domain. And even if you look at, uh, you know, the help like a city, all these uh, electronic instruments are also, uh, in the sense, speak in a feminist voice. Uh, So it just talks about it being women. Quite unsurprisingly, domestic work under capitalism is considered informal labor, meaning that even when employed, women domestic workers are deprived from the provisions of labor laws and social security, proving that they are still seen as the secondary labor force. You two are absolutely right. You know, I come from a very well-off family in Bangladesh, and just like most of the people I know, 
I have had domestic workers in my household all my life, and they have all been women. You know, while I was researching on the domestic workers in Bangladesh for this podcast, I kept remembering something that my mother very often says. Um, she would talk about one of the domestic workers who work in our house, and she'd tell, you know, she works twice as hard as than most people I know, yet somehow she never manages to come out of poverty. And, you know, I would actually be surprised if she managed to stop being poor because of the structural disadvantage she has. Um, I was reading a policy brief by an organization that works for uh, women domestic workers, and they reported that a domestic worker in Bangladesh earns only 59 US dollar per month, which is equivalent to 5,000 Bangladeshi taka. And in one of my courses during my undergrad, I actually calculated the poverty line income in 2021 in Bangladesh, and that was 16,000 BDT, which means that domestic workers aren't below the poverty line income, meaning that it's not possible for them to come out of poverty. And since I'm talking about their wages and how it's below the poverty line, it made me wonder who determines these wages. And apparently, one of the reasons why domestic workers cannot uh, bargain for regular or more pay is because they have no bargaining power. And I think this is exactly where feminist leadership comes into play and can uh, help us in envisioning a better future for domestic workers. You know, in Bangladesh, domestic work is still informal labor, so they don't have the legal backing for forming trade unions. But the workers who are parts of informal trade unions, they report that they were able to bargain for better wages due to their collective organization. And I think if the people or the policymakers uh, who work for the welfare of the domestic workers, if they could encourage more feminist leaders uh, to form trade unions for domestic workers, then this would be uh, a way in which we can solve the plights of the domestic workers. Um, something that uh, I found relevant in this case that during COVID-19, a lot of the factory workers, since they had trade unions, they could bargain for uh, their jobs and they could bargain for health equipments while they were working. But for domestic workers, even though they are very essential in our daily lives, since they don't have that formal unionization, they not only lost their jobs, but the people who kept working in the middle of the pandemic they did not have any access to proper health equipments. Uh, so that's, uh, for me, that's a space where feminist leadership can work. Talking about labor in today's time is quite incomplete without diving into the migrant workers' plight during the first and second waves of the COVID-19 pandemic, especially in India. Here, we saw a large number of migrant workers trying to go back to their villages, their homes. The lockdown was not thought out or pragmatic at all. It was as if we do not care about those who do not enjoy sufficient social security. And even within the scope of migrants, women migrants are the most marginalized. Yes. In fact, over the last decade, there has been significant feminization of migration in all the developing countries. Women are no longer migrating just to get married, but to also find better work opportunities and to supplement their family incomes. 
laws and policies have not been able to keep up with this shift. Uh, we see that the migration patterns are not studied well. There is no data collection at the national level. Female migration is still poorly studied and special health-related concerns of female migrants is also not well understood. This leads to an incredible lack of systematic data collection and even poorer monitoring of the situation. And this is very much a feminist issue. Absolutely, Lutmila. And in fact, 50% of the women who migrate for work are domestic workers and they are engaged in jobs such as cleaning, cooking and taking care of children. They also work in the tailoring and construction industry and factories. We will talk about each of these areas of work and the associated problems to make it clearer for our listeners just how deep-rooted this problem is and what is its magnitude. Aishmita, why don't you give our listeners some numbers? Sure. Female migrant workers, regardless of the industry in which they are working, live in extremely poor conditions. They have a monthly income of less than 5,000 Indian national rupees. Only about 17 to 18% of them have a bank account which they actively use, making them severely financially vulnerable. The issue is that our labor laws continue to ignore the fact that there are thousands of women who are employed in the informal sector and that there is no law or policy protecting their rights. 70% of women who are migrant workers in India do not get paid for any overtime. They are also frequently called to work beyond their usual hours, which is not surprising because their work is unregulated and unprotected. If we take the example of the construction industry, which is the second last largest industry in India after agriculture, 49% of the laborers in this industry are women, which is almost half. But these women are denied skilling opportunities because of which they are never able to become masons or carpenters. They continue to remain unskilled and toil in construction sites. Women are even paid less than their male counterparts. A woman will earn 300 rupees a day, whereas a man doing the exact same job will get 500 rupees per day. There are no toilets, no safe equipment, and many of these women hail from some of the poorest parts of India. They do not know their rights, the contracted benefits from this, and the government has also been unable to regulate the situation. Not just that, safety is also a major issue. And I'd like to thank you both for introducing me to the Indian laws and realizing that they are a double-edged sword for women informal workers. A lot of women are losing opportunities in the manufacturing industries because of laws which date back to pre-independence era and which have definitely not aged well. As per these laws, women cannot work in factories between 7 p.m. and 5 p.m. And this often becomes a reason why they are not promoted to managerial roles. This is something that's also similar to the RMG industries in Bangladesh, which we will talk about later in this podcast. And uh, interestingly, states have made provisions for nurses and midwives to work beyond these hours because these are considered typically feminine roles. Exactly. So if we are citing safety, disallowing women to work beyond 7 p.m. in an establishment by the same logic, they should not have to work in stretches at these hours too, right? I mean, I think we as a society have the tendency to bend the laws in a way which suits our patriarchal mindsets. Absolutely. 
women are banned from working in so called dangerous situations and areas which need a lot of physical and manual work now this is intriguing because even though it has been decades since safe equipment have been introduced in the industries the law has not changed in fact the construction industry which is something that we just talked about is full of manual tough work and these laws do not apply there because we need our buildings to be built on cheap disposable labor the female body continues to be colonized seven decades after the colonizers left and our bodies are seen as means to generate progeny in fact one law in india actually says that women cannot work in liquor shops to avoid sexual violence it is as if our mere presence and the fact that we are trying to make a living is reason enough for violence in fact aishmita we should ask the listeners to read about what is in beat district of maharashtra like you were telling me the other day oh definitely in maharashtra where female farm workers in sugarcane plantations are forced to undergo hysterectomies so that they can work longer hours do not get periods etc we will add some resources in the show notes and i will urge our listeners to take a look at it actually i think in my dictionary all this is violence yeah absolutely so now that we have been talking about the migrant workers etc have you guys actually heard about the unpaid workers at istanbul uh, especially the female workers who hit notes about the unfair working hours and unsafe working conditions and poor pay and attach them to the addresses yeah and these industries are more women dominated right absolutely um you know uh, bangladesh has been doing very well economic growth wise and one of the main reasons for such economic success is the ready made garments industry and what i find surprising and perhaps very appalling is the fact that majority of the workers in these industries are women and they're treated very unfairly well you both are absolutely right you know what more than 70% of the garment workers in china are women and as ludmilla already mentioned in bangladesh the share is like 85% and in cambodia this almost 90% but you know the assumption that the development and your uh, empowerment are correlated is actually just not true because those the those women are earning money but they are still not very empowered I agree absolutely development is so much more than just earning wages it is about having work security moving out of poverty providing education and healthcare for children growing as an individual it is so much more and i find it so sad how most of the workers especially women in global south are deprived from all this yeah in fact i think most of the workers they just work for poverty wages under absolutely dreadful conditions and they have to do an excessive amount of overtime in fact in bangladesh which is like the world's second largest exporter of clothes the minimum wage for garment workers is just 5300 taka which is far from the 8900 taka that are needed to cover a worker's basic needs and it is further away from a living wage many garment workers work between 60 to 140 hours of overtime per week and it is common to be cheated of the overtime pay oh let's not even go into health and safety women workers are denied even washroom breaks in some cases and you know what 
factory owners have been taking advantage of women's unequal position in society to form an even cheaper, more docile and flexible workforce. And you know, since I was talking about domestic workers before, I think uh, it is like a common trend to exploit poor marginalized women in general. Uh, so rather than challenge their subordination in society, work in the garment industry is reproducing it. Absolutely. Instead of empowering women, I feel like all these employment opportunities are acting as a mechanism to further make them more subordinated and more uh, marginalized. You know, women tend to earn significantly less than men. They face systematic discrimination and they're only able to access the lowest paid jobs with very poor prospects for promotion. Many of them have low work security. And if they're not prepared to work on the terms set out by their employers, they run the risk of losing their jobs. So whether it's the garment industries or whether it's the domestic work industry, the scenario for women workers don't really change. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, in many places, the unions are, women are not even part of the unions. Though many brave women from Bangladesh to Cambodia to Honduras, they are defying the threat, violence, oppression, the capitalist fo uh, forces in order to defend their basic rights. That struggle is the key for the development of workers, their families and whole societies. And it is also empowering effect for the other women who are majorly marginalized and discouraged to act politically. This could be really emancipatory change for women and a chance to move out of poverty and become stronger and more independent. After our discussion, we think it is important that we make some recommendations that can ensure the incorporation of a feminist lens that we are re-imagining when we talk about labor relations. We recommend and strongly advocate for redefining the concept of work, grassroots unionization of female workers, which will ensure representation, define minimum wages, legal reforms, inclusive social security and benefits, occupational health and safety measures, and upskilling for female workers across labor markets. We talked about a lot of things, and honestly, I have always been very, very interested to understand labor relations uh, through a feminist lens. For me, it's very important that we question who gets to define what work is and why women in most cases are delegated to work uh, that puts them into danger and that does not compensate them according to the work they're doing. So uh, like we said, uh, Feminist leadership is essential in understanding and reimagining labor relations because it will push women into leadership positions where they're going for more collective actions and where they're trying to unionize and have more bargaining power in a society that structurally disadvantages them at every single stage. So for our listeners, I would really ask them to reflect on what we have discussed and maybe add their own ideas and thoughts to it. Um, we really appreciate your support. If you like this episode, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at One Future Collective and at One Future uh, underscore India on Twitter and keep an eye out for future episodes of Explorations on Feminist Leadership by One Future Fellows 2022. Please leave your questions, comments, or feedbacks for us 
uh, on Anchor or in our DMs. We look forward to hearing your thoughts. Until next time, take care of yourself and we hope that we can explore more together. Uh, I'd like to end the podcast uh, with the hope for a world that is more feminist and that aspires for social justice across all sectors. Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store.